Well, we are here to worship our thrice holy God. What a privilege it is now to come to hear from his word and uh, to be taught by his word. Uh, My heart needs it, your heart needs it, and so let's prepare our hearts now to receive the word of God. We're going to be in John chapter 20, and we're going to be in verses 24 through 29. And what I want to do is both this week and next, and possibly one more week, I want to talk to you about something that is a secret source of sorrow, of suffering, and even of shame for many believers. And it is something which is a major barrier to belief for unbelievers. I want to talk to you about the topic of doubt. Doubt is both the reason the unsaved say they won't believe and the reason the saved fear they don't believe. I want to repeat that. Doubt is both the reason the unsaved say they won't believe and it is also the reason the saved fear they don't believe. Doubt is a common malady of the fallen race of men, like pride or greed or covetousness. It is a sin that we all struggle with to some degree and at certain times more intensely than others. So whether you're an unbeliever for whom doubt is a barrier to belief, or if you are a believer for whom doubt is a secret source of sorrow, of suffering, or of shame, this message is for you. And this morning, we're returning to our study of the Gospel of John, and we've arrived at a key passage for understanding and overcoming doubt. That's John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. In John 20, 24, we read this. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. As we study the example of doubting Thomas over the next several weeks, we're going to see three things. We're going to see what doubt does. We'll focus on that this morning. And then next week, we'll look at what Jesus does, and then what faith does. So we're going to look at what doubt does, what Jesus does, and then what faith does. You know, in his classic 6th century B.C. book called The Art of War, Sun Tzu 
wrote a famous saying. He said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. This is the origin of that famous saying that you need to know your enemy. To defeat your enemy, you need to understand your enemy. And doubt is an enemy of the believer and certainly an enemy of the unbeliever for it keeps them from Christ and from eternal salvation. So to defeat doubt, which is sown by our greatest enemy, the devil, we must know our enemy. We must understand it. So this morning, we're going to be studying what doubt does. What is the nature of doubt? What does it do in the life of a person? And the first thing that we see about doubt in this passage is that doubt distances. Doubt distances us from God, from the people of God, and from the Word of God. Look at chapter 20, verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This is an interesting point for John to emphasize. He's noting that Thomas had not been there on that first Resurrection Sunday gathering when Jesus came and appeared to his disciples and said, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side, and then commissioned them saying that as the Father has sent me, so send I you, and then breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and then gave them declarative authority as they were to go out and preach the good news. Thomas wasn't there, and John wants us to notice that first. He wasn't there. Now, some might think, well, it's just a coincidence that all the others were there and Thomas wasn't just a coincidence. But I think the text clearly indicates that his absence was significant. And I think it very strongly implies that he should have been there. I mean, think about it. It's Resurrection Sunday evening. All of the others are gathered together to hear the reports of Mary Magdalene and of the disciples who met the Lord on the road to Emmaus and they are now gathering to hear the reports of the resurrection of Christ, and Thomas isn't there. You know, I, I doubt the reason why he skipped this meeting was because he had a previously scheduled beard trimming appointment, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine, like, what, what was it that would keep him away from something so important? And I think there really isn't any good reason that we can surmise for Thomas to be absent from the gathering of disciples that took place on that Resurrection Sunday. And I think if there was a good reason, John would have mentioned it. Instead, what do we know about Thomas's absence when we read the Gospels? Well, we know, first of all, that he, along with all the other disciples, had fled in the Garden of Gethsemane and abandoned Christ. Then when Christ goes to the cross, only John and some of the women are present. Like most of the others, Thomas is absent at the cross. But by Sunday evening, they had all gathered together again. 
all except for Thomas. We don't know where Thomas was or why, but we know that Thomas was AWOL. He was absent without leave at both of the most significant moments in human history, the cross and then the resurrection. You know, when you skip out on the gathering of the saints, you can miss out on some really important things, and that's what happened to Thomas. He skipped out on that first Sunday evening gathering of the believers, and what he missed was huge. It was vital. He missed out on seeing and hearing some of the most important things that have ever happened. He missed the Lord declaring peace to the disciples. He missed the Lord breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, inaugurating the sending of the Spirit, which would then be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And he missed the Lord commissioning the disciples to continue his own mission as the Father has sent him. Now he sends them. Thomas missed all of that. He missed the Lord showing them his hands and his side. I want you to notice that in the text, John makes quite a point of emphasizing that the disciples assembled together, probably in the same place, on two successive Sundays. Look back at verse 19. It says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And then down in verse 26, it says, after eight days... His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came and stood in their midst. So, John really emphasizes that the disciples assembled on two successive Sundays. And when I say two successive Sundays, they're like, wait a minute, verse 26 says, after eight days, a Sunday, eight days, that'd be Monday. Well, you think that because you're thinking in the Western way where we don't include the day of the first event. We start counting with the next day. But the people in Israel at that time would use what is called the inclusive method of time computation where you would always count the day you're on or the day of the first significant event as day one and then begin counting, which would mean that Sunday to Sunday would be eight days. This is, by the way, why when Christ is crucified on Friday and resurrected on Sunday, the gospel writers say he was raised on the third day because the significant event on Friday is day one and then Saturday is day two and then Sunday is the third day according to the inclusive method of time computation which was used in Israel in those times. So in verse 19 and then in verse 26, we have a record of the first two Sunday gatherings of the disciples. These are the first two post-resurrection church meetings. Those gatherings started a pattern of gathering on Sunday that continues unbroken to this very day. And Richard D. Phillips writes this. He says, quote, It is interesting that Jesus appeared to the disciples on Resurrection Sunday and then did not appear again until the next Sunday. And he adds, when John says that Jesus returned eight days later, he is counting inclusively as was the Jewish pattern. In other words, he's saying that the Lord, by 
appearing to the disciples on two successive Sundays was establishing a pattern where believers gather on Sunday and the Lord is there in their midst. Then Richard Phillips continues on writing, Thomas alone of the remaining 11 disciples had not been present in the previous week's gathering when Jesus first appeared. It is not surprising then that while the other disciples were strengthened in their faith, Thomas drifted into a hardened state of unbelief. His absence from the fellowship contributed to his unbelief. This reminds us why all believers need to be regular and consistent in attending the worship of the church. This principle is especially true for those who are wavering in their faith or godliness. Of all the blessings that we miss when we fail to attend church, the most certain is the strengthening of our faith through the ministry of God's word. Because he was absent when Christ first appeared to the disciples, Thomas missed the joy of Christ's presence and the Lord's ministry of peace. It is no wonder that he spent a week in despondency when he might have been rejoicing in the truth of the resurrection, end quote. Again, think about how much Thomas missed when he missed that first Sunday gathering. He missed seeing the Lord, missed the Lord's declaration of peace. He missed hearing the Lord declare the sending of the Holy Spirit. He missed the Lord sending them on the Father's own mission. He missed the explanation of the declarative authority that they would have when they go out to proclaim the gospel. He missed all of that. He missed one Sunday gathering and he missed a lot. I think it's significant that one of the main things that the text emphasizes about doubting Thomas is that he was the only one of the 11 remaining apostles who was absent from the first Sunday gathering. John's letting us know that skipping the assembly of the saints is a big deal. It has consequences. You can miss out on some really, really important things. And whatever it is that you could do in the place of that is not as important as what you're missing. Maybe Thomas was at his pre-scheduled beard trimming appointment. Who knows? But he missed out. So if you're like Thomas and you struggle with doubt, the first takeaway from this passage from verse 24 should be this. Don't repeat Thomas's first mistake, which was skipping out on the Sunday assembling of the believers. You know, Satan is going to try to use doubt against you. He's going to try to use doubt to keep you away from Christ to separate you from God's people and to keep you from hearing God's word. Doubt distances. That's part of what doubt does. It distances you from God. It distances you from God's people and it distances you from God's word. Doubt wants you to be off somewhere by yourself alone with your confusion, alone with your questions, and alone with your unbelief. Doubt distances, doubt separates, and that's why it's so self-perpetuating. The more you doubt, the more you distance yourself. The more you distance yourself, the more you cut yourself off from the means of grace. Therefore, the more you will doubt. 
The farther you are from God and the farther you are from the people of God and the farther you are from the word of God, the farther you are from the answers to your questions, the farther you are from the means by which God strengthens our faith. This is why the great 19th century preacher Alexander McLaren wrote this. He said, quote, The worst thing that a man can do when disbelief or doubt or coldness shrouds his sky and blots out the stars is to go away alone and shut himself up with his own morbid and disturbing thoughts. The best thing that he can do is to go be amongst his fellow believers If the sermon doesn't do him any good, perhaps at least the prayers and the praises and the sense of brotherhood will help him. In other words, at church are the means of grace by which God strengthens our faith. And when you miss church, you miss that. So my friend, if you're struggling with doubt, that's the reason you need to go to church, not a reason to stay away. People say, well, I'm doubting, so I'll skip out on church. No, that's why you need to go. God gave the church the means of sanctifying grace, the means of strengthening our faith. That's the preaching of the word. That's corporate prayer, corporate worship, fellowship, and most vitally, it is the celebration of the ordinances, particularly the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a means by which God strengthens our faith. We are, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, in communion, declaring the Lord's death until he comes. When we skip out on the Lord's table, we are skipping out on a spiritual meal, on the nourishment of our souls. Skipping communion is like skipping your meals and your medicine. might feel okay for a while, but if you do it often enough, you will be weak and sick. This is why Proverbs chapter 18 warns us against separating ourselves from other believers. In Proverbs 18.1 it says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Right? The person who isolates themselves from other believers is quarreling against sound wisdom. He's cutting himself off from the very means of grace that God has given for the nourishment of our faith. Doubt distances you, but faith calls you to draw near. So the first step out of doubt is to decide to show up. Show up for church. Show up for Christianity Explored the next time it's offered. Show up for that apologetics class. Make an appointment with one of the pastors to talk through your questions or whatever it is that you're struggling with. You need to show up. Don't distance yourself. Draw near. And as you'll see in the example of Thomas, if if you show up, Jesus will show up too. See, Thomas skipped the first meeting and was hardened in unbelief, but then he made the right decision to come to the second gathering. And when he showed up, Jesus graciously also showed up and Thomas's unbelief was turned to faith. You know, if you show up, Jesus will show up too. In fact, I think it's clear in the text that Jesus wasn't the one absent. Thomas was. So you need to show up. You need to take a step of faith. 
to know the Lord, right, you need to be with him. You need to be where Jesus is. And Jesus loves to be with his gathered people. He is in their midst. Don't forget that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And so while, yes, you are, if you're a believer, indwelled by the Holy Spirit and God is always present with you, when the church gathers, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is in every believer, now there is a corporate gathering of the indwelled believers and there is power there and there is something different there that you cannot receive on your own by yourself. You see, the person who's like, well, I have Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need the body. They are denying the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in others. It's exceptionally self-centered. I have Jesus. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So I don't need the spiritual gifts or the indwelling spirit in anyone else. But such an approach will inevitably lead to doubt and doubt will distance. The second thing that we see about doubt is that it distrusts. Not only does it distance you from God, from his people, and from his word, but it distrusts God and distrusts people and distrusts God's word. Look at verse 25. It says, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubt distrusts. It distrusts God. It distrusts the people of God and it distrusts the word of God. You know, when it says that the other disciples were saying to Thomas, we have seen the Lord, that verb they're saying is in the imperfect tense in Koine Greek, and the imperfect tense is describing something that occurs in the past in a repetitious or ongoing way. In other words, during that week, the other disciples had been repeatedly saying to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. They were telling it to him over and over again. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. I don't believe it. Thomas, I'm telling you, we've seen the Lord. I don't believe it unless I see it. He hears it from the women. He hears it from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But I won't believe. He distrusts their eyewitness testimony. And he refuses to believe. He'd heard the good news of the resurrection multiple times from multiple eyewitnesses that week, but wouldn't believe. In fact, I think the text implies that the others had given up on trying to convince him. Because Uh, past imperfect tense is used rather than the present continuous. If they were still trying to convince him, he probably would have used the present continuous tense as in, you know, like they're still saying, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Instead, he describes it as like, you know, in the days leading up to that eighth day, they kept saying it, kept saying it, kept saying it, and by now they've kind of given up. Thomas is the classic skeptic. The believer's encourage him, they testify to him, and over and over, and at some point they realize it's no use, he won't believe. For Thomas, it didn't matter how many people testified to seeing Jesus, and it didn't matter how many times they told him, he still responded, I will not believe. 
Keep in mind that the ones bearing testimony to Thomas were his best friends. These were people who had left everything and risked their lives to follow Christ. They, along with Thomas, had spent three years together. They knew each other. No one would have a more credible testimony to Thomas than them. But see, doubt does not care about the credibility of the eyewitnesses. Doubt distrusts everyone. Everyone, that is, except himself. Notice that Thomas distrusts everyone except Thomas. Notice how self-centered Thomas's statement is in verse 25. Unless I see, unless I put my finger and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is saying, look, I'm the only one with eyes and brains around here, guys. It doesn't matter what you've seen. Mary, don't care what you've seen. Clopas, don't care what you've seen. I'm the only one with eyes and brains unless my fingers and my hands and my eyes and it's all about him. Thomas has no trust in what the others had seen, but he has supreme confidence in whatever he sees. That's pride. That's the assumption that you are better and more reliable than anyone else. Pride creates doubt because it creates distrust in anyone other than yourself. So if you didn't see it, it didn't happen. That's Thomas's attitude. I didn't see it. It didn't happen. How logical is that position? If I didn't see it, it didn't happen. It's not a logical position. Do you realize how little of what you believe is something you've seen with your own eyes? A tiny, tiny fraction of what you believe is something that you have seen with your own eyes. You've never seen Alexander the Great. You believe he lived. Never saw him conquer much of the world, but you believe he did that. You believe a ton of things you've never seen. And you believe a ton of things that have a ton less evidence than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, you would be absolutely paralyzed if you distrusted everything all the time. You know, you're getting on a plane. The door is shut. Is there really a pilot there? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen a pilot. You ask the spirit, is, is there a pilot there? She's like, yeah, I saw him go in there. Well, unless I see him, you got to open the door for me, right? Now, they're hauling you off with the cops because you're too interested in getting into that door. But, right? But all the time, you even stake your life on things, right? When you are approaching an intersection, you didn't see the red light on the other direction. You only see your green light. But you trust that there's not two green lights and that you're not going to have an unhappy meeting in the middle, Right? You would be absolutely paralyzed if you distrusted everything all the time. So notice, doubt, distrust, but it distrusts very selectively. Very selectively. It's always interesting to me. I'll talk to some unbelieving skeptic, and they'll say, well, I'm just not persuaded by the historical evidence for Christ. 
I'm like, so I just, you know, you can start listing historical figures. Do you believe they exist? Do you believe they exist? I mean, because the evidence for all of these other historical figures is scant compared to the evidence for Christ. You know, they'll, they'll believe in, uh, you know, the evidence by, you know, some, you know, Roman historian, but will discount histories written by Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Right? It's, it's a distrust that's very selective. And it's kind of a targeted distrust. And once you pry into why the distrust is focused there, now you're getting closer to the real issues. Doubt distrusts selectively. For example, it rejects the testimony of creation. The same person who drives by a building and says, what a beautiful building, I wonder who the architect is looks at all of creation and says nobody made it, right? They have selective distrust. The same person who says, I can't believe so many people are hypocrites, which, of course, presupposes that hypocrisy is bad, that there's moral law. Same person who is so sure that others are wrong and they are right will also then reject the testimony of their own conscience that tells them they have broken God's moral law, which is written on their heart. The same person who fancies themselves a historian will reject the undeniable historical evidence that the Old Testament was written and that we have it faithfully preserved in its current form and we have that dated before the time of Christ and there are messianic prophecies clearly fulfilled in Christ, but all that means nothing to them. They'll reject the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. They'll reject the testimony which so many martyrs have sealed with their own blood. They will doubt and reject the word of God himself. But they have no problem, almost on a whim, a single reading even, or just hearing it from someone else once. They have no problem believing the writings of secular historians, the theories of secular scientists, or the speculations of philosophers. All of that gains instant trust for them. Their skepticism is a very focused skepticism. Doubt, distrust, but it distrusts very, very selectively. In my experience, as I've interacted with skeptics, I've realized that the skeptic is almost always only a skeptic in regard to the things of God. In regard to everything else, they are a believer. They are a believer. So how do you get past selective distrust? You know what the answer is? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Don't be like Thomas, whose pride caused him to distrust all the other ten apostles while having complete confidence in himself. Here's the eyewitness testimony of ten people. Here's Thomas. Thomas ranks himself above them all. That's just pride. So the way out of that doubt is to humble yourself. Doubters feel uncertainty and they feel confusion. And sometimes they confuse uncertainty and confusion with humility. I've met some doubters who think they're really, really humble. In fact, they think they're more humble than anyone else. They think they're so humble they can't have certainty. And they think that anyone who does have certainty must be proud and self-assured. See, this is the deception of the devil. 
It's a form of pride. It is a blinding pride. The scripture says the devil has blinded the mind of the unbeliever so that he cannot see the truth. Doubt is a form of pride. It is a blinding pride. And that blinding pride tries to make doubt a virtue instead of a vice. I'm so humble. That's why I doubt. No, no, no. No, You doubt because you, the creation, have more confidence in your own experience and perspective than God, the creator. That's pride. Spiritual doubt is a vice because it flows from a pride which distrusts God while trusting yourself. It is the elevation of the creation above the creator. And it is the opposite of faith, which flows from humility and a willing to trust in God. Trust in God is manifested by trusting those whom God has said are worthy of trust. God it is recorded in the Gospels, speaks from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, that's God's message. Listen to Christ. Christ is worthy of your trust. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit would come and bring to the apostles' memory everything that he had said. He would guide them into all the truth. This is Jesus Christ saying that the inspiration of Scripture is going to happen and that Scripture will be recorded accurately and without error. So God is saying that you can trust the apostolic writings, the Scriptures. Jesus said the church is his body and said that the Father was sending them just as the Father had sent him and so they are his ambassadors, his body. So God is trustworthy, right? God's word is trustworthy and God's people, God says, are worthy of trust. But the doubter discounts them all. Distrust God, distrust his word, distrust his people. Doesn't matter how many people testify their lives have been changed by Christ, that's discounted. Doesn't matter the fulfilled prophecies in the scripture, that's discounted. Doesn't matter the very words of God himself, that's discounted, doesn't matter. Doubt, distrust God, distrust his word, distrust his people, and supremely trust the self. Now, the skeptic may hear me say that and say, okay, I, I get it. Okay, you're, you're saying, okay, humble yourself and just extend blind trust you know, to what you're saying, what your religion believes or whatever, right? You're advocating for blind trust. My answer to that is no, I'm not advocating for blind trust. What I'm advocating for, according to Scripture, is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit which pulls the devil's blinders off of your mind so that you can see the evidence that is not only all around you, it is in you. The scripture says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. He has written his law on our hearts. And the scripture says that through creation, the existence of God is known to the point that all people are without excuse for not believing. I'm not advocating for blind faith. I'm advocating for the removal of blind distrust and the opening of eyes. So dear skeptic, if you pride yourself on your opposition to blind faith, may I gently suggest to you 
that you need to also avoid the opposite error. You see, blind distrust is not an intellectually noble alternative to blind trust. Your your selective distrust needs to be scrutinized. Why do you have so much distrust for only certain things and so much trust for others? Blind distrust is not an intellectually consistent or noble alternative to blind trust. What is the uh, good alternative to blind trust? The intellectually noble and consistent alternative to both blind trust and blind distrust is an informed faith. An informed faith. That's how you operate in every other area of your life. You proceed through the green light because you have an informed faith that the other light is red. It's how you operate in the rest of life. Apply it to your spiritual life and something will change. I guarantee it. I don't guarantee it. Actually, God does. God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. Why haven't you found God? Because you're not searching for him with all your heart. He promises that if you will seek for him with all your heart, you will find him because he's not hiding. Jesus was standing in their midst, but Thomas wasn't there. So my question for you, dear skeptic, is this. Have you ever really searched out the truth about Christ and the gospel? Or is your whole, I don't believe because I don't see the evidence, just a lazy excuse? Whenever someone says, I don't believe because I don't find the evidence compelling, I, what evidence have you looked at? Oh, well, uh, uh, Very few, very few in several decades of talking to literally thousands of people, I have met very few skeptics who actually had bothered even to research. Is your, I don't believe because I don't see compelling evidence, just a lazy excuse for an intellectually dishonest and sinful refusal to even consider the claims of Christ, to even investigate the claims of Christ. Most of the so-called skeptics I've met, the self-proclaimed skeptics I've met, who say, I don't believe because of the evidence, are just blowing smoke. That's not the real reason for their unbelief. They haven't ever truly investigated, nor have they even considered the most basic evidence and the most obvious arguments. And they're not willing. You try to engage them. Oh, they don't want to hear that. They're not skeptics. They're just sinners. Their main barrier to belief is not a lack of evidence, which is overwhelming, Rather, their main barrier to belief is idolatry and an enslavement to sin. The real issue is that they love their sin and they don't want to give it up. Everything else is just an excuse. Why don't they want to investigate the claims of Christ? Because Christ to them is not a savior. He is a threat. 
He's a threat to their lifestyle. He's a threat to what they want to do, how they want to live. He is a threat to their own control over their own life. Because if this is true, if this Jesus stuff is true, then I have to repent. I have to turn from my wicked ways, and I have to follow Christ and become one of those Jesus freaks. Who wants to do that? That's their thinking. What will my friends think? What will it cost me? I become a Christian and I, I've got to stop fornicating. I become a Christian, I've got to stop stealing and I can't live for money anymore. I gotta, might even have to give some money to the poor or something like that. What could it be? What could Jesus require of me? I don't want to know. <laughs> All right, that's their attitude. Unbelievers fear and despise Christ. And they fear and despise Christ for the same exact reason that believers love and adore him. Jesus forgives and cleanses from sin. The believer loves and adores that about Jesus. The unbeliever fears and despises it. See, the cleansing from sin, right? You know, we go out, we, it's good news, right? You can be set free from sin. You can be cleansed from sin. You can have a new birth and a new life, and the unbeliever who loves his sin says, I don't want a new life. I like this one, right? I don't want Jesus to take my sin away, right? We, we think about you know, Jesus, right? His blood has taken away our sin. Well, they are feeling, the unbeliever is afraid of that. They don't want to be robbed of their sin because their sin is precious to them. They love that sin. They adore their sin, and they don't want to be saved from it. The barrier to belief is ultimately not an intellectual one. It is a spiritual one. It is a moral one. It's a love for sin which leads to a hatred of God and therefore to a distrust of God's word and a distrust of God's people. Doubt distrusts. There's a third thing that we see in the life of Thomas about doubt, and that's that doubt demands. Doubt makes demands. In verse 25, right, he has a demand. Unless I see the hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubt makes demands. Notice that Thomas has absolutely closed his heart and his mind to even considering any other form of evidence other than the very, very specific one he had unilaterally chosen. All the eyewitness testimony, cast out the door. Any attempt of the others to prove to him that the tomb is empty, he doesn't care. He has made one demand, and unless that demand is met, he won't believe. Doubt makes demands. He's telling the other disciples, right? They're saying, we've seen the Lord. And his response is, look, it doesn't matter what evidences you present that the tomb is empty. It doesn't matter what arguments you might make based on the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. Remember when Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He showed them all of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and they saw how they were all fulfilled in Christ. So now those two disciples are coming to Thomas and they're showing him the Old Testament prophecy. He says, Thomas, look at this. It said they'd cast lots. What happened to the cross? They cast lots. It said he'd be pierced. What happened? He was pierced. 
It says that the Messiah will be raised. What's happened? He's been raised. Thomas, you got to believe. No, no, because my doubt demands one form of proof and one form of proof only. I've got to put my finger into those nail prints. Otherwise, I won't believe. I've decided, Thomas says, that the only thing that will persuade me is this one thing, right? And again, he's unilaterally making demands. Doubt makes demands. I won't believe unless, and now fill in the blank. So the question for the doubters and skeptics is, what is your demand? What's your demand? What demands are your doubts making? And then a gentle suggestion. Maybe the reason you can't get over your doubt is because you've allowed your doubt to make demands that are arbitrary and unreasonable. God is not a circus performer. He doesn't do tricks on demand from you. Jesus said it's a wicked an adulterous generation that demands a sign and none will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And what was the sign of Jonah, right? Jesus said, look, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. In other words, the resurrection itself is the sign that God has given us. Maybe your doubt is making demands that are disrespectful of God's majesty. And disrespectful of the means that he has sovereignly chosen to reveal himself to those who search for him with all their heart. How does scripture say he reveals himself? It's through the proclamation of the gospel, right? It's through the testimony of creation and the voice of conscience telling you you're a sinner and then the proclamation of the good news that Jesus saves from sin. That's kind of the three basic means, the testimony of creation, the voice of conscience, and then the proclamation of the gospel. Those are the means God has ordained to bring someone to faith, but those means aren't good enough for you. See, you want to step above God and make demands of God and turn him into a circus performer that does the tricks you ask for when you ask for them, and if he doesn't do those tricks, then you won't believe. I think we've all done this. I remember one time when I was in high school, I was really struggling with doubts, and I remember going outside and saying, God, if you're really there, you'll write the word believe in the sky. You know? You know, and, you know, to which, you know, what's, what's the response of this, right? Like, you know, like, God is not your own private circus performer, right? Like, you know, we don't get to boss God around. Like, hey, write believe in the sky for me, or, you know, you know, cause this, you know, you know, this, you know, red flower to turn blue in front of my eye, you know, whatever it is that your doubt is demanding. Make sure that your doubt isn't making demands that are disrespectful of the Lord. The solution for doubt begins not with certainty, but with humility, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? So you're path out. If you want to move from doubt to certainty, there is an intermediate step. It's called humility, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So your first step out of doubt is to humble yourself. Stop making demands of God and start listening to his demands of you. What does he say? He says, if you won't come to me with the faith of a child, right, with that simple childlike trust, you're not worthy of the kingdom, you need to humble yourself. So friends, if you see a lot of doubting Thomas in yourself, and I think we've all seen a lot of doubting Thomas in ourselves at times and we have all related to him, 
pray this message will help you understand doubt a little better. The better you know your enemy, the easier it will be to defeat it. And we've seen three things that doubt does. Doubt distances, doubt distrust, and doubt demands. That's what doubt does. Next week, we're going to take a look at what Jesus does in response to Thomas's doubt. And trust me, when doubt squares off with Jesus, Jesus wins. That's what we'll see next week. So I want to close by urging the skeptics and the doubters to repent of distancing themselves from God, from God's people, and from God's word. To repent of distrusting God and God's people and God's word. And to stop making demands of God. But rather to come to him in faith. James, the brother of the Lord, didn't believe. We see several times in the Gospels that the Lord's own brothers, including James, didn't believe. All that changed for James after the resurrection. And he writes in James chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Lord, that is my prayer uh, for any skeptic or any doubter who hears this message, is that they would humble themselves because you give grace to the humble. I pray, Lord, that they would draw near to you, for you have promised that those who draw near to you, you will draw near to them. As Paul told the Athenians, you are not far away, you're right here. It's just the blindness of our eyes, which is why we can't see you. So Lord, I pray that you would open blinded eyes and blinded hearts. Hearts which have been blinded by sin and self and Satan. Open that heart. Open those eyes to see the majesty and the glory of the gospel in Christ. And may they come with that simple childlike faith that says, God, I trust you.